Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. Let's turn to our uh, version of God's Word, Um, Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 36. We're actually wrapping up this section in Romans. We'll kick off something else next week when Bryce uh, comes and opens up a series for us. Um, I need to tell you that in just about a month, I'm going to reach a milestone. Finally, after years of trying, I'm going to become a Delta Diamond Medallion member. Hold your applause, please. Uh, Yes. Delta used to have a motto that said, keep climbing. And just so you know, the way this works in airlines, they weren't really talking about just keep taking lots of flights and uh, ascending in elevation. They're actually talking about keep climbing in your loyalty, in your status, in your significance. And I'm about to tell you, I'm going to go as high as you can go in the Delta family. It's a pretty big deal. Um, It would actually be really taboo in most social settings, but airlines get away with this. Imagine the gate where there are hundreds and hundreds of people waiting to board the flight The gate agent picks up the microphone, taps it, and then begins to rank everyone in the room from most important to least important. I would like to now invite our diamond medallion members to board through the priority line. And a handful of people, among who I will be one, stand up. And we look around and we say to ourselves, that's right, all you losers, we are the most important people in the room right now. And let me tell you, it feels good. In fact, as I sit in my first class seat and I drink my fancy drink with the umbrella or whatever they, you know, like I'm sitting there watching all these coach-bound people walk by me knowing that they want my upgrade, they want my seat, they want my fancy drink, my status, but they can't have it because I am more important than they are, at least in the Delta universe. I'm joking about that, not about achieving a status, that I'm actually, it's actually happening, but um, most of us, in our own ways, with ourselves and with our group, whatever our group is, have managed to twist our lives and the worlds around us so that we can stay convinced that we are the most important people alive on planet Earth. It's true, we do it. You do it. I do it. We do it with our groups, whoever our groups are. Some of you are thinking, no, that's not true for me, Pastor. I don't even like myself. Um, In fact, I hate myself. And the dirty little secret of how this works is, okay, but even the world of shame and pain that you have built for yourself, guess who exists right in the middle of it all? It's still all about you. This is pride, isn't it? It's selfishness. In my case, 
It's elitism. And Paul, as he's writing to this fledgling young church in Rome, sees it in the hearts of the Gentiles as they think about the Jews. In fact, the Gentiles are sitting in their cushy first-class seats, and the Jews are filing on board the airplane, and they're walking to the back, and the Gentiles are thinking, we are way more important to our God than they are. And what Paul wants to say to us this morning is, look, when it comes to God's church, there is absolutely zero room for elitism. None of it. Especially elitism that is based on your social status or on your ethnicity. There is no room for that. Why? Because the most important one in the universe has looked favorably upon you. And our God has invited us, He's included us into His family. In the words of this passage, He's invited us into His great mystery and into His great glory. And when we get that, it absolutely melts elitism in the church. Listen for that. I'll invite you to stand. I'm going to read this passage, Romans 11, starting in verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who can be his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Please be seated. Lord, indeed, it is all true. Who understands your ways? Who has searched out the edges of your wisdom? And yet you've given us part of your word, and we want to scratch the surface. We want to get a glimpse of what happens in your heart and your mind. So would you help us by giving us your Holy Spirit, not just so that we understand, but so that we are changed as agents of your gospel by your word. Please do this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So there is no room for elitism in God's family. Why? Because he's invited us into the great mystery, his mystery of his salvation plan. Paul starts us off in verses uh, 25 and 26. Hey, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. 
And then he tells us a little about the mystery. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In other words, this mystery, God's salvation plan, should humble us and should leave us in awe. Humble, because do you remember the starting point of the mystery of God's salvation plan as it pertains to non-ethnic Israel, the Gentiles? I mean, it goes a little something like verse 30, right? Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God, it starts with our disobedience, the fact that we are outsiders to God and His family, many of us. And yet God has chosen to love a people like us. We're not native to God's family, but we're in God's family, and it's because God has been good to us and gracious to us. It's not because we have kept climbing in status or we're so, so important to God or we've been good enough or we've worked hard enough. No, it's just because God loves us and has chosen us. And we ask the question we've been asking for the past few weeks, why? And the answer is, I don't know. We don't know. We simply don't know. It is part of the mystery Paul is not talking specifically about that mystery. He's already addressed that earlier. Now he's talking about the mystery, this bigger mystery, that's about the interplay and the timing of the Jews and the Gentiles' salvation. And man, does it present us with some hard questions. I wonder if you've picked up on some of this, right? Verses 25 to 26, I'll summarize. Okay, The Jews are being hardened. In the meantime, the Gentiles are coming in in droves and giving their lives to Jesus and being saved, being welcomed into the family of God. And when that period of time is over, in all likelihood referring to when Jesus returns, when that is over, guess what happens? The Gentiles, all of them have been saved who are going to be saved, and now all Israel will be saved. Whoa. What? All Israel? And here begin our questions. What does that mean? Who or what, first, is Israel? Some would say that Israel is spiritual Israel. And so this is Jews and Gentiles, all blended together, spiritual Israel who have been chosen to be into God's family. I don't think that's what this is describing simply because in the past two chapters, Paul has used the word Israel ten times, and only once is he maybe using it that way to describe spiritual Israel. That's uh, in um, chapter 9, verse 6, when he says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Instead, when you look at the context It seems pretty clear that Paul is speaking about ethnic Israel, the Jews themselves. Okay, that leads to these other questions. How many of the Jews make up all Israel that will be saved? Ultimately, we don't know. I'm not really convinced of one of the answers that I'm going to give to you, but I'm going to give you four answers And you can think through it and do your own work. Option one, 
all Israel will be saved means that every Jewish person who has ever lived will be saved. Now, as much as I would like that to be true, and as much as that resonates with pluralistic modern minds, I don't think that squares with what Paul is teaching here or in the rest of the New Testament when he writes, because it would set up a two-track salvation system. So on the one hand, you've got ethnic Israel, and they can be saved through their obedience to the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. On the other hand are people who aren't ethnic Israel who are trusting in Christ to save them. And Paul actually takes this separation pretty seriously and gets kind of angry about it when he writes in other places, you do not add anything to salvation alone in Christ alone. Salvation is Jesus plus nothing else, just Jesus. He actually even alludes to it in uh, this passage, right? Verses 26 and 27, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay, Jacob, Israel, where does the deliverer come from? Heaven. The deliverer comes from heaven. The deliverer doesn't come from inside, from within, from our moral obedience. No, deliverance comes down from heaven, from God himself. It is God himself who himself takes away our sins. That's option one, not my favorite. Things get a little more muddy with options two, three, and four. Option two, all Israel will be saved is saying that every Jewish person who is alive at the time Jesus returns will be saved. This is a very popular opinion, the most popular opinion at this point in time in history. Um, After the Holocaust, as people are beginning, the Jews are beginning to re-inhabit Israel itself, you can see why this perspective has some traction. Um, It may be the case, I would say, if it is the case, please hear me say clearly that Christians cannot commit injustices against Palestinians. We can't turn a blind eye to that just to ensure that the Jews are living in Israel instead of the Palestinians. That is unjust unbiblical, and I doubt very, very much that it's going to speed up the return of Jesus, just in case that is the motivation, okay? Option three, all Israel will be saved means, just means, the sum of all the remnants of the Jews throughout history. And so, this is just the complete remnant, all the elect Jews over time. That's the opinion of some of my favorite theologians, actually, Um, I'm just not so sure about it because it makes this verse seem kind of meaningless to say that, well, all of saved Israel is going to be saved is, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the point. So it leaves me longing for a little something else, which brings us to option four. All Israel will be saved is actually corporate language. And by that, I mean... All Israel is different than every Israelite. Okay, and we do this all the time. Uh, When we say that all of Colombia, the whole nation, was watching La Selección uh, blow up their World Cup chances. (laughs) I'm sorry, it's awful. Um, What we're saying is not that every single 
breathing person in Colombia was in front of a TV. No, some of us were working, others of us had other things to do, or the internet went out or whatever. But we are saying that the vast majority of the people in this country were glued to their TV, having their hearts broken by uh, our team, right? In the same way, there will be an overwhelmingly large conversion of the Jews, so big, so massive, that we could say that the whole of Israel is saved. When will this happen? I don't know. Option four leaves things open. It could be this last-minute revival among the Jews just before Jesus returns. It could be that, or it could be describing this gradual but growing and growing movement within God's ethnic people to surrender their lives to Jesus, the true and hoped-for Messiah. We don't know because it's a mystery. But what we do know is what the Christian response should be in all of these scenarios. First, we reject this idea that we as non-Jews are more important than the Jews. We reject that. No elitism. Second, we embrace the mystery that God still has something incredible for his ethnic people, even though we don't know what it is. And third, we get busy sharing the love of Jesus with the nations so that we can contribute to the full measure of the Gentiles coming into the family of God. And we share the good news of Jesus with our Jewish friends and neighbors and colleagues and classmates so that they too will experience the beauty and the freedom of the gospel. But we contribute, we play our part in this story of redemption by telling everyone how good Jesus is. And therefore, we help to make this thing happen as God gives us strength and as he converts his people. All of this leads us to his great glory. I don't know about you, uh, but as we're singing, Behold Our God, I'm getting just a little taste, a little taste of it. Um, God has invited us into this mysterious salvation plan. And he is so good to us and so powerful and so gracious that he makes us a people who see what he's doing and who he is. He makes us a people who say, wow, wow, that is glory. Not our glory, not our importance or the importance of our group, but God's glory alone. When we look and we say, wow. What happens is Paul is writing about this mysterious plan of salvation and he interrupts himself with doxology, right? Doxology is just a churchy word uh, to say he starts with some glory words, right? Some words of praise. He starts to sing, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Wow. Paul's assumption is that every single person who is made in the image of God has been made to experience glory. 
We all crave glory. We all wake up every day wanting glory. It's why it feels so good to be a diamond elite medallion member, or it's why we create ridiculous artificial systems to try to convince ourselves that we are somehow more important than someone else. Every little girl who has walked into her living room and done a twirl in her beautiful princess dress and said, Daddy, don't I look beautiful in my princess dress, is saying, Daddy, give me some glory. Look at me and tell me, wow. Every athlete that will climb the podium in Beijing is searching for glory. The whole world looking at them and the way they ski or shoot or skate or jump so that the whole world will say, oh, Wow, look at them. Every teenager that puts out something on social media and watches like after like after like come in is longing what? For what? For glory. We all want it. We crave it. It makes us feel alive. It'll also master us and destroy us if we let it. It's why a 16-year-old girl fills her body with a bunch of illegal substances so that she can do a jump on the skating rink that no other woman has ever done before. We crave it. We were made for it. And often we will do anything to get it. And I bet that's true about you. It's true about me. What's the problem? Well, it's right here in this passage. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. If we experience glory apart from our God, it will not be enough. It won't. It'll crush us, leaving us hungry for more. This is Super Bowl Sunday for those of you who don't follow American football. 11 years ago this week, Aaron Rodgers, quarterback of my beloved team, the Green Bay Packers, led our team, our community, Um, to a championship. And I'll never forget what happened to him after that big game. I mean, it's this unbelievable performance. He's the MVP. He's on top of the world. And he's sitting on his bus with this massive party going on around him. And he said, I felt something very unexpected. It wasn't regret. It wasn't fulfillment. It was emptiness. It was emptiness. And the article I read wrote this. He thought about life and football and everything he had invested in his sport, and a jarring realization sprang to his mind. I hope I didn't just do this. Do what? Achieve glory. Because now what? Now what do I live for? All the glory that we can get for ourselves or that we can get from other people simply won't be enough. It'll feel really good for a moment, but then it's gone. I have to get off that airplane and I have to go and pick up my very normal suitcase and get in my very normal taxi and go to my very normal house to spend time with my very normal family. And guess what? They don't treat me like a Diamond Elite member at my house. I'm just dad who was gone, but is back now. It's not that you aren't important. But let me say this clearly. You are not more important than someone else. You're not. You're not more important 
than someone else. Just like a Gentile is not more important than a Jew and vice versa. You are important. And the reason you are important is because God has given that to you. Actually, the gospel says this really radical thing to us. God invites us into his glory to share in his glory. Every Sunday we finish our service by singing the doxology, right? That's to orient us. We don't sing some song about how awesome we are. We're such a great church. Amen. Everybody should be like us. No. We say, God, you are so great because something radical just happened. The God of the universe came close to us and dispensed grace to us. And that's amazing. And so all we can say is how beautiful you are, God. And so we sing. We step into his glory. We experience it. We reflect it back to him and to other people around us. Why do we do that? It's because of this. Here's the shocking thing about the gospel. Through your connection to Jesus Christ, you, yes, you, God looks upon you and says, wow, wow. That's how good Jesus is, and that's how real you are connected to Jesus, your Savior. That is remarkable because we don't, deserve, we don't deserve that. But anyone that the Father has invited into his family gets God's wow through Jesus. All glory comes from God, but in his grace, he shares it with people like us. Think about the way Jesus prays. Just before his death, his disciples are there. It's John chapter 17. He starts by praying for the disciples, and then he prays for you and for me. My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen to this. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. You see it? Glory, oneness, together. Don't pull them apart. God shares his glory with us through Jesus, and we share it in common with one another. And in God's family, I can't say it loud enough, no one is elite in God's family except Jesus. When we remember that, that we really are all one, regardless of social status, regardless of ethnicity, we will finally lay aside our pride and this sense of entitlement and we'll embrace and embody humility that happens when a sinner realizes he or she has been invited into the family of God, invited into the mystery, invited into the glory. It's amazing. It's no surprise that uh, Apple was founded by some really, really big egos. I was reading about it this week. And what happened is in the late 70s, <clears throat> Apple begins to explode, right? Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, they're not the only people that are working for Apple. Actually, there are enough people now who are working uh, that when they show up, they don't know each other. And so they have to do what lots of companies do when they go from family business to like a business business. They have name tags. And in this particular case, the name tags all had a number on them. And the number represented how early you joined the company 
and also how important you were to the company. And so which Steve gets number one? That was a huge debate. Actually, it was a huge conflict. Originally, Wozniak was given number one and Steve Jobs was given number two. And it absolutely drove Steve Jobs crazy. He didn't want to be second to this guy. Hey, look, we're co-founders. We founded the thing together. And, and when you think about it, I should be number one because J comes before W in the alphabet. That's why I should be number one and you should be number two. Now, just, just look for a second at how twisted the human heart is. Here are two of the most brilliant minds in the last 50 years that have changed the world and how we operate, frankly. And they're arguing over who gets a one on their name badge and who gets a two on their name badge? What is our problem? Well, I, I don't know if you want to know the end of that story, but Steve Jobs ended up assigning himself zero because zero comes before one. Paul is saying, look, Jew, Gentile, whatever, we are all one in Jesus Christ. In some moments of history, it's going to seem like this group is number one and like this group is number two, but no, 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 we are all one in Jesus Christ. And so when someone who doesn't know Jesus steps on board that airplane, guess what you do, Christian? You get up out of your first class seat and you go to the back of the airplane. You say, you know what? I'm assured that the God of the universe loves me. But you may not be, and I want you to experience the freedom and the beauty of having God look upon you and say, oh, wow, welcome to the family. And so I'll go to the back so that you can experience belonging in his family. I'll be number two so that you can be number one. That's what we do as we share the love of God with the world around us. And guess what? At the end of the day, if no one else in the world thinks, you know what, you're elite. If no one ever says that. If you never feel it, it doesn't matter because the God of the universe loves you. He loves you enough to give you his son, Jesus. What more could we want? Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise for this. Um, Indeed, Lord, from you and through you and for you are all things. To you be glory forever. Would you make us a people who, who believe that, who live that, that the nations would be reached, ethnic Israel and the nations surrounding ethnic Israel, that all people, every knee would bow before you, professing that Jesus Christ is Lord, not for our glory, for his glory. Please do this, we pray, through people like us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.